Hey everyone, thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. A sermon about the life of a king named David and the truths we can take from it on living a meaningful life ourselves. Before it plays, I want to update you on two things. First, we have built a new website to serve as a central hub for our church. The site is creekside.me and on it you can subscribe to our newsletter, sign up for an event, donate money, and even let us know how God has used this sermon to impact you. The other thing that I want to let you know about is that our sermon videos are now available on our website. If you'd rather watch this sermon than listen to it, just visit wilsonville.church David. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Well, good morning, everybody, again. Uh, I'm excited today to start a new series of sermons on the life of David, but I want to begin by telling you about how I spent, you know, the biggest part of my childhood, probably, and that was dreaming that someday I would be a professional athlete, and I would be out in the driveway, and it didn't matter, rain or shine, uh, and this, I guess, wasn't shooting for the professional level. I had smaller goals when I was younger, maybe. But uh, I would be out, and I would pretend that I was the greatest point guard in Duke University's history. And I would take the game-winning shot over and over and over again because I was sure that someday I would have to do it in real life. And also, when I was a kid, uh, I wanted to be an incredible NFL running back. That was even more of a dream, um, and, and the couch was the defensive line, and I would try to over and over and over again dive over the pylon and clear with the football the couch, also known as the defensive line, and I usually scored. I was really good against that couch, uh, and I think, I really do believe that, that our desire to be a professional athlete when we're a kid or to uh, be a professional musician or a great painter or whatever it might be isn't really about uh, wanting a career in those things. I think it's more about this desire that is, that is inherent to us, that is innate within us for significance, to live a life that is meaningful, to live a life that is purposeful, to live a life that is impactful to those around us. And I think when we're kids, we dream of these things because we, we hope that we will, and we, we could not articulate this, we, we wouldn't understand this even, but we hope that we will live a life that, that actually matters, right? I mean, little kids, they want to be firefighters, you know, because they think of saving people and doing something that's important. And I think that what happens is, is over time, as people become adults and the real world kind of gets to us, oftentimes that desire, that dream to have a significant life uh, goes away. And we forget that, that at one point, you know, maybe, you know, 50 years ago, we hoped that we would do something that really mattered. I think actually... Um, in, in the millennial generation, which is a lot of us now at this church, uh, we see like that the young boys, um, millennial men, are, are like addicted to video games. 
And we also see, sociologists tell us, that millennials are the first generation in American history that believe the future will be worse than the past. Every other generation in American history thought, we'll, we'll make it better for our kids. It, it will be better for our kids. It will be better when I'm older. And the millennials now, um, because of things like September 11th, because of things like uh, the talk of global warming, uh, because of all the shootings that surround us, they think, well, it's, it's going to be bad and it's going to get worse and there's no hope and and so you put those two together and and I see that like that there's a lot of millennial young men who are addicted to video games it's like a real thing and I think it's because they're like I want to be significant but what I do isn't going to matter anyway so at least I can I can do something really cool I can be a superhero I can be I don't know those kind of video games. I can do something important in a virtual world because they don't believe that they can do anything important in the real world anymore. And I think some of you feel that, you know, either because you've grown older and you're like, I haven't lived a life of significance and I didn't become a firefighter and I wanted to and if I just would have been a professional athlete, then I could have, you know, really impacted people or whatever. And we come to some point in our lives where we're like... I'm just going to get through this life. I'm not really going to use this life to make a difference, to have an impact on the world. And this series is here now to hopefully cause you to dream once again, uh, to really believe that you can make an impact, that you can make a difference we're going to study this, this man named David, and uh, you see those hopefully in those little booklets, which I hope you'll take home and, and you'll go through those by yourself and with your family. I, I, I've heard that they're helpful for people, and I think they'll be helpful for you if you use them. But, uh, but David is this guy that, that shows up in the Old Testament. He becomes the greatest king in Israel's history. He's most famous for killing a, a giant named Goliath. We'll talk about that next week. I'll even bring my Goliath action figure. Um, I I mean, he's most famous for that, but he's a guy that lives a life of incredible impact. I mean, let me just give you some things. I mean, just this, I, I just, this makes him super cool to me, and this is probably why I connected with David as a kid. He could use a slingshot. Like, that's cool. Have you ever, like, tried to build a slingshot or use something as a slingshot as a kid? Like, literally impossible. And the guy could use a slingshot. So that's, like, just to me, it's like, wow, what an impactful life. He could use a slingshot and play the harp, which makes him an athlete and a musician. That's pretty difficult to do. But the impact gets better than that for, for the whole world. He's become, like, the standard bearer for what it means to overcome an obstacle that's too big because he slayed a giant, right? I mean, not, there's like not one, at least American person that, that doesn't know what it means to like, you can conquer Goliath, you know, and be like, oh, I can do this. I can overcome this. I can, I can be like David. We all get that. And so, so he lived such an impactful life that the whole world uses him as an influence for when they're facing some type of enemy that they don't think they can overcome or some type of obstacle and they look still, even if they don't know they're doing this, to the example of David for encouragement and inspiration. He defeated the Philistines, which were one of the biggest, if not the biggest, of the Israelites' enemies in their history and, and he like totally conquers them, a job that wasn't even his, but he does it anyway. I mean, he conquered Jerusalem and he brought the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a little thing that contained the Ten Commandments and, and where the Israelites found leadership and guidance from God as, as they kind of carried this 
thing around. And, and he was able to conquer Jerusalem, which becomes the holy city, right? I mean, uh, we think about that now and all the tension and the fighting. And, and David went in there and he conquered that city for the Jewish people. And he brought the ark there. And eventually, uh, he would lay the plans to build a temple there. And we'll talk about that in the series as well. He unified the tribes of Israel into a single, single nation. I mean, that's a big deal, right? To take these 12 tribes who saw themselves kind of as their own group and their own people and they knew that they served the same God and, and that they had the same bloodline. But David becomes king and he unifies them into one cohesive nation that's working together and really conquering much of the known world at the time. God promises him, and then this is proved true in the person of Jesus, that his kingly reign will never end. Never end. You will, for infinity, have a person sitting on your throne that comes from your lineage. And that person we know now is Jesus, which is an accomplishment in and of itself, that Jesus is born in the line, the genealogy of David. God gave him plans for the first and most glorious temple. As I said, he wrote a majority of what we call the Psalms, a, a collection of songs in the Old Testament that we will actually study uh, in the next sermon series. I'm super excited about that too. And he's so important that there's like three almost entire books of the Old Testament that are devoted to the stories of his life. And we're going to look at those stories in this series, uh, some of those stories. But I mean, you need three fairly large books of the Old Testament to talk about the things that you have done. That's a big deal. And here's, here's what's so great as I prepared this series and outlined the seven sermons in them. What we're going to discover about David is that he's not that different than you and I. He does these incredible things that, that glorify God in his lifetime and throughout history, really. I mean, throughout history. We're still glorifying God because of some of the things that David did through David and what he did. And he's not that different than you or I. He's just a guy, but a guy that lives an incredible life of impact. And so today I want to look at uh, 1 Samuel 16, and we'll begin there in verse 1, and we see this first story where, where really the, the story of David begins, where it, it starts, where he, becomes, uh, where he becomes anointed to be the future king of Israel, and this is how it starts. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so just a little background information. The Israelite people, God said, look, I'll be your king. I'll, I'll rule over you and reign over you. I'll be a great king. You don't want a human to be your king because you'll regret that. They'll be bad. They'll lead the nation astray. And they say, we want a king. And, and they don't really care about, you know, what God wants in a king. They look at this guy named Saul and, and Saul is big and strong and good looking and cool. And they're like, that's the guy right there. Like, that's the guy we need to lead us into battle. And so they pick Saul as a king. And, and what they what they thought God was not right about, he was in fact right about because soon after Saul becomes king, he begins to be disobedient to what God would have for him and therefore for the entire nation. And at first it seems like it's little small things, but eventually those things grow and, and he just 
kind of rejects God outright, it seems. And Samuel is this prophet in the land, which, which really, and we don't understand this very well now because we don't have like a single prophet that tells us what God has said. We have the Bible, which tells us what God has said. But Samuel's this prophet for the land. He's really the mouthpiece of God. God speaks to Samuel so that Samuel can tell the people, hey, here's what God thinks about how you're living, what you're doing, how we're acting, what we need to do next, all of these things. And Samuel's looking at Saul and the life that Saul is living and he's mourning it. He's sad. He's brokenhearted because he sees that Saul has rejected God and the ways of God and being obedient to God. And God says to Samuel, hey, quit your whining because I have a new plan. It's time to move on. It's time to go to Bethlehem and and anoint a new king because I'm going to raise somebody else as king, And there's a couple things that just immediately, as we think about impact, uh, for me, it just jumps right out in this first verse. And, and the first is simply that David's impact is fueled by Saul's failures. And, and we look at the failures of the world, I just believe this, and there's so many right now, and I've talked, to, I did a series on church not long ago, and I think we're still kind of thinking about those things as a congregation and how we want to be different than, than how church is sometimes done and all of that stuff, and, and it's so easy, and we know this, to look at what everybody else is doing wrong and to say, man, this is terrible, hope it doesn't go badly. But in this story, we see that David's impact is fueled by somebody else's failure. And when you look around and you see failure, it means, I think, in the kingdom of God anyway, it means that there's an opportunity for you to step up to the plate and for you to do something that is going to have an incredible impact. If David did not live under the failure of a king called Saul, then his opportunity for impact would not have been as great as it becomes because of Saul's failures. And I really believe because I I know you and I know Christians and I know the Christian culture in the world today and man, I think we've become just so known for for what we're against and what we're bothered by and uh, and I think we've made a point of, of saying bad things about even the church and like they're doing it wrong and they're doing it wrong and they're doing it wrong and and if only people would change and you know be more like me but 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 we should be thinking what can I do? Because I see these failures, how do I fix them? What do I do about them? What does God want me to do about them? Now, this other thing that I just, it's so, to me, it's just so important here is, is this word chosen at the very end of verse one there is actually a Hebrew word. Uh, well, <laughs> the whole Old Testament just about is a Hebrew word. So it's not actually a Hebrew word. It is a Hebrew word. Uh, and it means selected as in to see or as like the English idiom, um, I have seen to it. Like I, I see the problem and I'm going to take care of it. And it has this sense of like God is going to provide. And so it isn't just like, hey, I kind of picked a king for you guys. It's like God is saying, I have looked around and I've seen the need of this nation. A better king. A king that follows me. A king that loves me. A king that's obedient to me. And because I have seen that, I have chosen, I have provided somebody else, somebody new. I think that if failure can fuel our opportunity for impact, the other thing that can can also fuel that is need. And where you see need, you see opportunity to be 
a person that makes a difference, to be a person that lives a life that is impactful. I think that too many of us, too many of us who call ourselves Christians, we see the failures and we see the needs and we think, I hope somebody does something about that. All the while, deep in our souls, we have this longing to do something that matters. But all we do is think, I hope somebody else does something about that. And I believe just from experience, life's experiences, that that when you see a need strongly, maybe, just maybe, God might be calling you to do something about it. Don't you find it a little bit strange that the, the problems of the world, they bother us to different degrees? Like, some people are like, I can't believe they're starving people, right? And other people are like, I can't believe how many people are in prison. As soon as they go back, they'll, uh, as soon as they get out, they'll go back in. And other people are like, oh man, there's a homeless population all over the city of Portland and that bothers me. And I do believe that the thing that bothers you might be the thing that maybe God wants you to at least take a step in making an impact in. And so just in verse one, I mean, I think we could talk about those things longer and go deeper, but I wanna, I wanna deal with this, this entire story today. But, but if you see failure and you see need, maybe you ought to just start by saying, God, is there something you want me to do about that? In verses two through five, the story continues. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So just a a little kind of preview, a little uh, just, you know, let's get our toes wet and just notice that word anoint because we're gonna come back to it at the very end of the story because I think it's super key, but it's 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 just a key theme in this whole story, anoint, anoint, anoint. Um, But this is just interesting to me because frankly, Bethlehem, we think of it as like, if you think of it at all, if you've been a Christian, if you've celebrated Christmas, uh, then you're like, Bethlehem, that's a big deal. Jesus was born there. But for these people, you can tell by this story, they're like this little obscure village to the north of Jerusalem that nobody cares about. And so to have the the prophet of the land show up in your city, I mean, there's a little bit of like, uh uh-oh. You know, and, and so they're like, what, what did we do? What's wrong here? It makes me wonder what was happening in Bethlehem. Like, it's like, dad's coming home. Hide, everybody, you know. And the prophet shows up, and they're like, what are we going to do? And, and, and he comes in peace, and he says, hey, Jesse, this guy, like, hey, I want you to consecrate your children. I want you to make yourselves holy. I want you to go through the purification process so that we can do this sacrifice to God, so that we can worship God together. And, and this is what we read in, in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. He looks at this son, who in my children's Bible stories growing up was always the oldest son. I don't think that's true from the actual story, but, but just for my sake, the oldest son, and he looks at him and, and he's like, I don't know what he sees, but he sees something physically in this person. Maybe similar to what the people saw in Saul when they elected him as their king the first time. Maybe he was good looking. 
Maybe he was big and strong. Maybe he had a personality that seemed kingly or leadership-like. Maybe he, he can see like this guy just fits what we would envision in a king. He's the guy that we want to make the, the statue after because nobody wants a bronze, uh, a, a big metal statue of a skinny guy like Chad. You know, I mean, like this is the guy right here that we are going to put in Jerusalem and make him king and it's going to be awesome. And we know, we know that we have a tendency, we believe in our heart of hearts, I think, that people must fit a certain billing that we can see on the outside if they are going to be people that impact. In our society, if you're a good communicator, we think, well, they have a chance to do something important. In our society, if you're good looking, we think they have a chance to live a life of impact. In our society, if you have an outgoing personality, they have a chance to do something. If you're super athletic, if you have a skill that that we value, such as art or music, we think, "Well, well, this will allow for a person to have. There's a fly. I know you all see it. I see smiles. This, if flies don't attack you while you're preaching, then you have a chance to live a life of impact. And I believe what happens is that, let's just be honest, most of us are average. That's what makes average average, right? I mean, most of us, we have a couple of skills, but they're not skills that people look at and go, yeah, that's a life of impact. That person, you know, really... Uh, you know, they're decent at math when they were a kid. I mean, we, and, and so we, most of us go, I don't have top-level athleticism, top-level beauty, top-level musical skills, top-level artistic skills. And we believe, you might not say it out loud, we believe I'm not going to impact the world in a great way. And Samuel, who's the mouthpiece of God, a prophet, not led by God, looks at Eliab and is like, this has got to be the guy. Hasn't even interviewed him yet. Doesn't even know if he likes God that much. I mean, like this, this, look at him. I mean, man alive, this is a, you know, a specimen right here. This is the guy that's going to make an impact. And then, man, maybe if we just read one verse in this whole series, it's verse seven, because I think this speaks to those of us who are average. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearances. They look at the looks and the abilities and the personalities and the family history and the pedigree and all of those things. And and this verse, I mean, just so incredible, isn't it? So you just want to read it every morning and think, oh, well, average isn't that bad, I guess. You know, I mean, in fact, some of you want to, as you get older, look in the mirror and be like, hey, look at this verse, right? I mean, God doesn't look at what people look at. He looks at your heart. And in God's kingdom, our impact will not be based, and we're going to come back to this even stronger in a second, it's not going to be based on the things that people see. It's going to be based on the quality of our hearts God looks at the hearts just want to prove this to you because I have these pictures of these people who have lived incredibly impactful lives and I would not say any of them are super sexy men and women <laughs> so this is mother Teresa you may have heard of her I mean we all know her she 
was like one of the world's greatest humanitarians. And we know her mainly from when she was old. Don't we picture Mother Teresa like this? And so often, I mean, some of you are older. I won't say old. Some of you are older, right? And I think you believe like, well, too old, you know, like I'm not going to have a life of impact anymore. And God's not looking at that stuff. He's not looking at your age. And Mother Teresa is, uh, is, proves that to me. What I have here? This is Michelangelo, not a handsome fella. I can say that because he's long dead, right? I mean, not a handsome guy. And he paints the Sistine, that's not Sistine, thank you, getting it, Sistine Chapel. And by the way, did not consider himself a painter, but a sculptureist, or however you say that word. And it's used in incredible ways to glorify God. I'm pretty sure if you were to Google God and, and click on images, his picture, I mean, that's what people think about when they think of God. This is Blaise Pascal. You might know him from geometry. I don't because I got a D minus. Uh, but he has a triangle. Um, and, uh, and this man is responsible for one of the uh, most popular proofs, uh, most popular uh, ideas behind uh, proving God or at least getting people to think about the existence of God. It's called Pascal's Wager and he, he basically says like, hey, uh, if you don't believe in God and you're wrong, you get to go to hell. If I believe in God and I'm wrong, whoop-de-doo, you know? Like that's pretty much it. That's not how Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, said it. That's Chad's words, but, but that's it. And I mean, he's balding and I mean come on and a mathematician because we would look at mathematicians and say what a nerd but God doesn't look at the outward appearance this is C.S. Lewis like the most influential Christian writer of the of the 20th century and uh, I mean he had a brilliant mind yes and was a brilliant writer but you look at him and you would think like this guy just fits in right I mean look at him he's just a normal guy he looks like a grandpa kind of looks like my grandpa a little bit now that I'm thinking about it uh this is Hal Donaldson. You don't know him. Um, I was at an event this last week uh, or two weeks ago, a golf tournament where I learned about an organization called Convoy of Hope. And this is the founder of Convoy of Hope. Very normal guy, kind of a huggy guy. He hugged me and I just met him, you know. He's one of those people. Uh, not a gifted communicator. Um, decent looking man. Um, but uh, nothing abnormal. He wasn't strong particularly, at least looking, I don't know, he could have beaten me up maybe, I mean, there was nothing about him except for when he spoke, you could tell that his heart was just deeply impassioned for people around the world to be fed, specifically kids to be fed, and, and, and he, in the last 30 years, has, has started one of the top 100 charities in the, in the nation, um, and, and it was all about his heart. Uh, this is John Piper. Uh, John Piper, you know, by I think every standard is a, is a nerdy man. And in fact, um, John Piper, one of the most influential preachers today, and for me, he's like the, probably the most influential pastor out there. I don't know him personally, but just listening to him, and I kind of want to be like him when I, uh, am his, when I get to be his age. Uh, but I think by every standard of the world, 
uh, he would be called a nerd. Um, there's no way around it. He's not even particularly gifted when he speaks. It, well, he is gifted. Let me rephrase that. He doesn't fit the norm when we talk about who would be a great speaker. But I hang on every single word he says. And it seems like people all around the country do. And in fact, he has an incredible uh, ministry online to people that are in their 20s. Are, are people who want to listen to him like crazy. And nothing about him says like 20-year-olds are really going to connect, you know? I mean, nothing about him says that. And yet, millennials are drawn to this guy. uh, And it's all about his heart. Uh, The reality is, is that Saul fit perfectly what a king was supposed to be like in the world's eyes. But his heart wasn't right. And so he doesn't live a life of good impact anyway you could say that he had a bad impact but he doesn't live a life of good impact in first samuel 13 13 and 14 we read you have not kept the command the lord your god gave you talking to saul if you had he would have established your kingdom over israel for all time but now your kingdom will not endure the lord has sought out a man after his own heart talking about david and appointed him ruler of his people. Acts 13, 22, New Testament, talking about the same thing. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. We don't know exactly what it means to be a man after God's own heart, but we can see these things about David and the stories we'll look at and in and, and the Psalms and, and we'll talk about the Psalms, like I said, in the next series. But, but we can see these things about David. He's so humble. I mean, like his entire life, you're like, dude, you're like one of the coolest people. You throw a slingshot and play the harp. I mean, and he's just like, I'm nothing. God is everything. He's reverent of God in a way that we just hardly have ever seen in our lives. Like, God, you, you deserve all the glory and I'm nothing without you and I want to worship you. And like, I love this about David as I read the Psalms. Like, God, don't kill me. Why? Oh, because I won't be able to worship you from the grave, right? Like, not like I want to stay alive. I want to be able to meet my grandchildren, but I want to worship you. So let me be healthy so I can go down to the temple and worship you. He's respectful of God. He's thankful to God. Like he's so thankful for everything he's given and everything he has and for all of the impact he's been able to have in his life. He's totally trusting of God. It's like, God, if you let me down, I die. If you don't let me down, I win. Or if you step up to the plate, I win. My life is in your hands. Do with me what you're going to do. He's loving. He's devoted to God. He's faithful to God. But when he's not faithful to God, he's repentant and humble enough to be repentant. He strives, you can just tell, with his whole life to be obedient to the things that God wants. And he's passionate about the things that God says. And God looks down and he chooses him as king. I see in these people, I mean, let me just read you some quotes from these these people, these same people. Mother Teresa said, let every action of mine be something beautiful for God. That's a heart thing, right? I mean, Michelangelo, uh, which I didn't realize until I was kind of looking around for this sermon, but he said, a poor man, he's talking about himself, a poor man and of little value, a man who goes along laboring in the art which God has given given him, 
for as long as I possibly can. That's a heart thing, right? It would be so easy for this guy to be arrogant. I'm not even a painter, and I painted one of the most famous paintings of all time. Right? Like that would probably be me. Um, Blaise Pascal, knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our wretchedness. C.S. Lewis, the Scotch Catechism says that man chiefs Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to fully glorify. You see his heart come out. Hal Donaldson, there's a book about him, and it's called this. The story of one man's determination to obey God this way. Um, It's not famous enough to have a 1920 by 1080 picture. John Piper We weren't meant to be somebody, we were meant to know somebody. And I know from listening to enough of his sermons, he would tell you that we are meant to glorify somebody, not ourselves. In 1 Samuel 1, 8, excuse me, 16, 8 through 10, then Jesse called Amenadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. This is all about him being chosen, and we'll come back to that in a minute. The brothers were not chosen. David was chosen. But David's not brought forward to Samuel. And then we read in verse 11, so he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, I guess there is still the youngest. I added the guest part. Jesse answered, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. I mean, think about this. Samuel's like, hey, I'm going to choose one of your sons as king. Jesse's like, I got eight of them. I'll bring these seven. Somebody's got to watch the flock. It can't be that guy. I mean, it can't be David, right? He's little and scrawny. I'm going to leave him with the sheep. He brings these seven sons. I think about Cinderella when I think about this story, and I don't know why, but there's a scene in the new version of Cinderella where they're coming with the glass slipper, and, and, and she's not being allowed to come down, and I'm just like, oh, she's the one. She's the, like, let her free. The new one, the cartoon never made me feel that, but, uh, but the new one, the live action one did, and, and, and here's David just left because he doesn't fit the billing, because on the outside, he can't be the one that God is going to choose and to anoint as king. But here's the reality. The people's afterthought becomes the Lord's anointed. The people's afterthought becomes the Lord's anointed. I know that there are many of you who sit in front of me today that for one reason or another, as you've moved through life, the dreams have died and you feel like an afterthought in society. You are living just to get by because the world has not been as kind to you as you would have hoped because you didn't do the right thing at some time in your history. If you just would have got that college degree or you just would have got that break or that promotion or or that family member would have been nicer to you, then you maybe could have had an impact. And now you look at yourself as an afterthought in the world. There are people out there that are doing cool, awesome, wonderful things, but I'm not one of them and I'll never be one of them. And if that is you, you look at the life of David and you remember that the Lord's afterthought, excuse me, the people's afterthought became the Lord's anointed. That is an incredibly powerful truth. 
that applies to each and every one of us. Because it doesn't matter, even if your parents looked at you and said, hey, you be the one to watch the sheep because your brothers and sisters are the ones that are important. Even if that, which runs deep and hurts people and hurts some people in this congregation, even if that's true for you, God is looking down and saying, you too can be my anointed that has an incredible impact on the world. So he sent for him and he had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. By the way, if you're good looking, you can also make an impact. Uh, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. It's a cool story. I mean, uh, David shows up. God says, this is the one. Samuel says, I will anoint you and this idea of anointing comes from like this word that means to rub oil on something it goes back to like animals even but it was done for for this purpose of saying you have a special calling on your life and for David that calling was king but here's what's even cooler to me is that in first John 2 20 talking to just regular old Christians regular old God-fearing people that have given their lives to Jesus. In 1 John 2.20, it says this, but you, average person, have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. And then in 1 John 2.27, as for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you. You see what this says? This says that because Jesus comes to earth, dies on a cross, rises again, goes into heaven and calls you to follow him. If you make the decision to follow him, then you too, no matter how average you are, have an anointing on your life. The New Testament declares that every single Christian has a purpose, has a distinct purpose, a distinct calling from God. In fact, it uses the same language of the story of David. We have been chosen. That's like one of the favorite things of the New Testament writers to call, uh, to say about Christian people. You have been chosen. And we see here that we've been anointed. And then in this other part of the story, it says that the Holy Spirit descended powerfully upon David. And we know from the New Testament that if we are Christians, we give our lives to Jesus, then the Holy Spirit descends powerfully upon us and indwells us. It lives inside of us, leading and guiding us through life's adventures. It's so easy to look at David and say, he was anointed and he was chosen. He was called and the Holy Spirit came upon him. Of course, he did something great. But frankly, it's a cop-out so that you can look at the needs and the failures and go, eh, well, if I was only anointed and chosen and filled with the Holy Spirit, then I could do something important about that. But the New Testament completely takes away that excuse because it, it looks at every single one of us and says, you are chosen, you are anointed, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says that, in fact, that we have been created for good works. We are God's handiwork. So this morning, I just, I just want you to understand it does not matter how you look to the outside world. If your heart is right, 
then you can live an incredible life of impact. I believe you will live an incredible life of impact. And the first thing that means is that you need to become a Christian because look, this is the story that the Bible gives us. We all have darkened our hearts by sin. We've darkened our hearts by doing things that are disobedient to God. And the reason that Jesus came in that story that I just told, the reason he came from heaven to earth to die and to rise again is because he saw that we were marred by our sins, our disobedience. And he came and he died so that if we accept his gift of salvation, we believe that he died and we believe that he got out of the grave and we give our lives to him, then we are cleansed of that sin. And we are chosen and anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're a person that's never done that, I'm just telling you that you might be able to do cool things. You might be able to be famous and make a lot of money and and lead people and all that stuff. But your impact will die with you. Because eternity awaits us. And the only true impact that we can have on this earth is an impact that lasts forever. And it only comes by giving your life to Jesus so that your heart can be cleansed of its sin. But the rest of you, as we move into this series and we go forward here, you need to think about where your heart is. Perhaps you've given your life to Jesus. I hope you've given your life to Jesus. And with that comes an anointing and a a chosenness and, and the Holy Spirit. But you need to start thinking like, Is my heart one in which God can do something with me? You need to stop saying, am I talented enough? Am I good enough? Do I have a good enough plan? Am I a good enough leader? You know, do I fit the world's billing? Can I do these things? Can I even accomplish anything? You need to stop asking those questions. And you need to start asking, is my heart a heart that God would look down and say, I can use that about? And so for those of you who aren't Christians, give your life to Jesus. But for those of you who are, and you truly want to make an impact, you want to make a difference, you want to live a life that is meaningful, wake up each day and ask yourself, is there something wrong with my heart that needs to be addressed? And if there is, address it so that you might have a heart that God can use for mighty, mighty purposes. Let me pray. Jesus I thank you for coming to this earth to die for us, Lord. I I believe, God, that that a lot of people here with me this morning think uh, that that they don't have much to offer uh, in the way of impact, God. But, But in you, Lord, every single person here can do something incredible for this world and for your glory, God. And I pray, God, that every person here would be convinced that that is true this morning, that your Holy Spirit would descend and would convince them that no matter how many times they've messed up, no matter uh, how many things they think are wrong with them, no matter how unimportant they feel, no matter how unimportant their parents have made them feel, no matter how unimportant even their spouses make them feel, I pray that they would believe, God, they'd be convinced this morning that in you they can live a life of impact, God. I pray for people here that don't know you and people that will listen online that don't know you as their Savior, that have not given their lives to you. I pray that they would give their lives to you so that their hearts might be cleansed of sin, so that they might be forgiven for the things that they regret and and just wish never would have happened, God. And I pray, God, for those who do know you and do love you, that, that this morning, Lord, they would 
begin the process of working on their hearts so that their hearts become one that you can use, God, for your impact. While we are arrogant, God, while we are boastful, while we are harboring sin, while we are in it for ourselves and not for your glory and for your worship, it's going to be, I know, far-fetched for you to use us in the ways that I think we all deeply want to be used, God. And so work on us, work on me, God. Give us a heart after your heart, God. Pray these things in your name. Amen.